This is our chance to see beyond the speeches that politicians are making. This is our chance to, to, to think a little bit beyond what our mainstream media is telling us. And what does it mean for us? And strangely, um, this opportunity has been a reset on so many levels, but it's been a reset on like my mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. And going back to the beginnings of that and then just thinking about the ways in which a mindfulness practice helps us just think of things more clearly. Taking pause and thinking how other people might feel is not only one of the calls to action for this moment that hopefully will go forward, but I think that that's like the work we need to do now. So, you know, really think, how do I make space for other people? How do I make other people feel comfortable? Like, how do we create a more just space in our communities? That's Knox Robinson, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. What is up, people? Rich Roll here. Welcome to the podcast. Okay, so as we find ourselves amidst a global pandemic and the most powerful civil rights movement of my lifetime, despite our differences, which concerningly seem to be expanding, I think we can nonetheless all agree that this moment, how we respond to it, how we navigate through it, how we grow from it, how we educate ourselves because of it, will indelibly shape the economic, the political, and the social fabric of our country for many years to come hopefully for the better. And so to help us untangle the rhetoric behind the supercharged division we are experiencing, I reached out to my friend, Knox Robinson, who traveled all the way from Mexico, God bless him, to share his perspective with me and all of you guys today, which is pretty awesome. Returning for his second appearance on the show, his first was two years ago, episode 394, one of my all-time favorites, I should mention. I urge all of you to check it out if you missed it the first time around. Knox is a writer, he's an athlete, he's an accomplished national caliber runner, an eponymous curator of said running culture, and an astute student of black history, art, literature, music, and poetry. And it's an education that formally began for Knox with his tutelage under Maya Angelou at Wake Forest University and has continued throughout the many chapters of his life as a spoken word artist, as a music manager, as editor-in-chief of Fader Magazine, and more recently as co-founder and captain of Black Roses NYC, a diverse collective of running enthusiasts who routinely gather to hammer out intervals across Brooklyn and downtown Manhattan, a moving emblem of New York City's running street culture. Knox is among the most interesting and multifaceted humans I've ever met, someone for whom urban culture is lifeblood. And I think an important voice in and perspective on this moment that America is currently experiencing. As usual, I've got a few more important things to mention about Knox and the conversation to come. But first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. 
But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And 
With that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, we did it. Thanks for sticking with me. I'm super grateful to our sponsors. Their support makes this show possible, so I appreciate it. Today's exchange is not only a check-in with Knox, who, as I mentioned, is currently residing in Mexico City. It's also an investigation into the culture shifts caused by the pandemic and protests alike. It's about virtue signaling and performative allyship and why reading white fragility simply isn't enough. It's a deep dive into black America representation in athletics. But more than anything, this is about the poetics of running, running as a metaphor, running as an act of rebellion and the disturbing symbolism behind Ahmed Arbery's murder. I left this exchange better for having had it. I really appreciate Knox's perspective. This one is special. I think you guys are gonna really dig it. So without further ado, Knox Robinson, everyone. Knox, delighted to have you here. Thank you for Thanks traveling for many miles to be with uh, be with me today, Matt. For sure, of course. Um, so you've been holed up in Mexico City for what, like nine weeks or something like that at this yeah, point? Yeah, it's it's felt like, uh, obviously considering everything, it's felt like a lifetime. So um, yeah, I've been out there for, for three months, maybe a little over three months. Uh-huh. It's been wild, yeah. I thought originally that you were down there for some kind of you know event or professional reason. But that's not the case, right? Like you went there when things started to get hairy in New York and kind of escaped yeah. purposefully. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I had been kind of watching the news since the end of last year. You're just kind of as a vague conspiracy theorist, you're always just kind of seeing, you know, or an engaged citizen. Uh-huh. Uh, you're kind of just seeing the chatter and, 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 and focus on things. And as it just started to spiral out of control, um, I was just thinking about on a couple levels, like um, the practicalities of my own personal life. You know, I have like a small daughter uh-huh. and if the school shut down, my son, what, he's 16, what was that going to be like? And then, you know, what would the social situation be like in New York on like an infrastructural yeah. level? So I was thinking about that. And then also 
once you just started matching up the lack of cohesion from the national, state, and local level in New York, <laughs> uh-huh. um, the triumvirate of of, uh, of of Trump, Cuomo, and and De Blasio. It was kind of time weird. To get, time to fly. I was like, why Mexico City though? Why not? I mean, Mexico City is such an incredible place. I've been spending so much time there uh, more and more. Um, and in addition to being like empirically great conditions, 8,000 feet altitude or 7,700 yeah. feet altitude, uh, rich culture and history, um, it just seemed livable. Right. You know, um, and so I went down there with with my partner and our daughter, and and uh, have have stayed. For right. A while. So she's like three, right? Your yeah. daughter. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I've only been to Mexico City once. It was for a Runners World event, okay. and it was it took place at a college campus that's in that newer part of town. I don't know what it's called, where there's like lots of fancy skyscrapers and things like sure, that. Sure. And my only experience with like the older part of the city was just touring, you know, very quickly over the course of an afternoon. But that's kind of where you're living, right? Like you're living right in the center. Of- yeah, well, I'm living in, um, in Cuyacan, which is, um, you know, an, an incredibly cultural rich neighborhood because that's where like Frida Kahlo and, and uh, Diego Rivera had lived mm. and had their studio. Um, <laughs> It's interesting. Um, there's a big the the Whitney Museum had a huge show about Mexican muralists um, right before uh, the pandemic closed things, and um, one of Rivera's contemporaries, um, Jose uh, Clemente Orozco, was was also included in the show. I'm staying at his place. Oh wow! So you know, my daughter's sleeping on this bed underneath like his sketches, and it's steeped in art and history. Yeah, except she's three. So, yeah, but the osmosis of that. Well, yeah, but the result is she's been like devastating the historic oh, no. building with crayons. <laughs> like I right. looked under the table the other day and there's a hole <laughs> under his mural sketch is like a huge mural of, with her crayon yeah. ruining this like historic building. Like I haven't uh-huh. told the owner yet, but when I move out, like the bill is going to be insane. You got to so. respect like the young mind though, like with no with no reverence for, you know, the 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 legacy uh, that precedes it. Yeah, you know? I, I guess. Time that for sounds, her imprint that, on that. That sounds cool, but I mean, <laughs> I wish she could have been an accountant yeah. and just like with an abacus or doing something yeah. less impactful. When it comes <laughs> time to get the security deposit back. It's a wrap on that. Right. Um, what is Mexico City's, uh, response to the pandemic, Ben. Like, what? How does that compare to what's going on in America? Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been obviously it's been called out in in major media as as problematic. Um, but again, our news sources, our mainstream media's uh, news sources, you know, aren't necessarily trustworthy. And so the presidential spo- the the head of state response from um, from AMLO. Um, on down uh, has has been a little sketchy, but I, I was reading kind of some some information when I went down there for the first time, and he was just kind of saying, and and the response was saying like, we know that like humans aren't going to be able to social distance like ad infinitum. There's going to be like a capacity, and once bandwidth is exceeded, people are just mm-hmm. going to rebel against whatever stricture. So they were playing that heavy calculus of waiting for things to peak and crest. And then apply like heavy social distancing, whether whereas like another kind of method would be impose social distancing early on. Yeah, more prophylactically. Yeah, exactly. But again, that comes with, um, you know, in, in cultures where they may not even have like the same concepts of social liberties. Yeah. On what or civil liberties rather, uh, in terms of Mexican 
of joy of living, the social liberties are, yeah. are, are pretty chill. So I think he was just saying like, listen, this is Mexico. Uh, we have a huge sort of like day laborer force and, you know, public transport and, and you know, mass populace moving around, but also people are chill. So they ain't really going for like social distancing mm. strictures. And, and now as you see, um, whether it's like New York or Arizona, um, once people kind of like were over it, they were over it, you mm-hmm. know? And I think that even today, you know, we may be on the wrong side of history with this conversation, but even in this moment, the kind of like, you know, understanding of, of those things has been, um, has been shifting. I mean, for yeah. me personally, I've been in lockdown. My partner is definitely like by the book, social distancing. So we haven't been kind of like flaunting any conventions and stuff like right. that. I've definitely been tortured with a three-year-old. <laughs> I think I think we're not gonna be able to really be able to evaluate properly which protocol and strategy was was best, you know, for another 18 to 24 months. Sure. Like we're this is just a huge experiment in progress and we're seeing different cities, you know, apply different measures. Um, now we're seeing the spikes as a result of the, you know, the all the protesting and all of that. You know, we're comparing that to the way things are being done in Sweden and the goalposts just continue to move and the information that we're getting from supposedly, you know, vetted sources continues to change. And I think it creates a lot of confusion. Yeah. And you butt that up against people just getting fatigued of staying at home sure. and they're like, fuck it, you know. Yeah. And with the protests, it's sort of like the floodgates opened and now it's very hard to go back. Yeah. You know, we're right. like, well, we kind of did that. Yeah. Like we're out in the world now. Yeah. You know, I've noticed in my own behavior, just, you know, I, I picked you up at the hotel, we hugged, you know, we went and did a, a an antibody test just before the podcast, we're both negative. But, you know, my, I wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have done that like two weeks ago. Sure, we wouldn't be sitting here like two weeks ago, right? So, and and who knows what's right or wrong? Like, we're all just figuring out as we go. This is just like a huge petri dish, you know, in motion at the moment. Um, And it's interesting that you chose Mexico. Like, I'm going to leave New York and I'm going to go to the most population dense city in the world (laughs) for the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting choice. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I guess. If anything, that just shows you how dire like my own kind of prescription for New right. York was going to be. I mean, like you know, I, I definitely. But you, I can't see you being able to uh, exist anywhere for any long period of time without some significant urban culture, because yeah. that's your lifeblood. But yeah, you gotta you gotta carry it around with you. So I'm definitely like, you know, trapping out a little bit. I mean, uh-huh. I, when I think about the things that I wish I would have brought with me when I like ran out with like a duffel bag, I did bring like the USB speaker. So it's just been, if anything, an incredible time to go back and like dig into so much culture, dig into so much music and uh, yeah, go back to like all the things that, you know, you weren't really able to 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 unlock in the fast paced life that we were living yeah. up until very recently. Yeah, you know, this is this moment of forced repose where we're all being given an opportunity to take inventory of our lives, what's working, what's not. And I myself have been trying to take advantage of that. Like the idea that we're just gonna return to normal, I think would be tragic. Like here is this moment where we can really think more deeply and more profoundly about what we want our lives and culture and society to look like. Layered on top of that with everything that we're gonna get into, you know, makes this all the more exigent in terms of, you know, evaluating our systems and our individual behavior. For sure. So. Let's get into it. I mean, I think, you, you know, as I was thinking about having you on, um, I thought, man, you know, 
everything that's happening across America right now is so um, you know, relevant to Knox's you know, vortex of interest. It must be weird for you to be in Mexico City and be more of an observer of what's happening rather than a participant because you've been talking about this stuff your whole life, right? Yeah. And now here we are in this unprecedented historic moment and you're in a completely different country. Yeah, I mean, definitely um, that that double consciousness of, of of being a Black American that happens all the time, as as you know, Michelle Obama said, Barack Obama can get killed going to the gas station. So, um, although I definitely have been thinking about all these ideas and and living through these ideas my whole life and experiencing sort of these these you know kind of cultural waves my whole life. At the same time, I was thinking about like what the actual social situation was going to be like in lockdown in New York as like a black man in America. And mm-hmm. that's when I was like, I, I'm not here for that. Cause I know me going down the street, that's just like, you, that's just too dicey. If you, got, if you got caught out and there's a curfew, you being a black man just puts you at a greater risk than. I, I'm just not, yeah. yeah, I'm just not like, I'm not a, I'm not a stay-at-home black man. <laughs> you know I mean? Like I'm not. I'm You're not. Like, one of I already those guys. know I'm going to break that rule. I'm just saying. I yeah. just know that it's just uh-huh. not gonna gonna be gonna be that. So I was like, let me take myself out of that situation before I find myself in that situation. And again, none of us knew that the world was going to like spiral in this way. But uh, I just—it's been amazing to see it from a distance. And then also, when you think about the interaction with. Mexican culture and black American culture over 500 years is super fascinating. So for me, I mean, I'm thinking about like John Carlos and Tommy Smith every day. I'm thinking about Mexico City, 1968 Olympics Mm. every day, you know? So if we're thinking about Colin Kaepernick and if we're thinking about Minneapolis, then I'm also thinking about, you know, the events of 1968 in Mexico City. Yeah, it is interesting how this has brought that into the forefront of consciousness again. And we're seeing those images of those guys and we're having discussions about, you know, what happened to them in the wake of raising their fist on the podium sure. in 68 and how their lives really were never the same after that. Sure. What's also interesting though, is how they got to that point, you know? Um, and I've really been profoundly affected by uh, this book called The Revolt of the Black Athlete by mm. Dr. Harry Edwards. I haven't heard of that. Um, it's incredible. But he was the architect that worked with students organizing in the early in the mid-60s um, around San Jose State, I guess. And these are the athletes that ended up on the Olympic team. You know, this is the guy who has been in Kaepernick's ear and really kind of like given him a lot, of, a lot of the political support for his mm-hmm. kneeling protests. And, um, and also, I guess it was the University of Minnesota football team that you know, had a, a boycott and a protest just several years ago. So this one individual has been kind of like situating uh, black American athletics and athletes in the context of political realities for since the mid 60s, since mm-hmm. the early 60s. When did he write that book? In the early Back 60s. Uh-huh. In, uh, no, I think it might've been a reflection on the events of, of 68 and then he's needed to update it too. Um, so then a new edition came out in the past year or so. Uh-huh. That's super fascinating. It's kind of getting a second um, buzz now because if you saw that Soderbergh film, High Flying Bird. I did, yeah. Um, so that's the, 
that's the the thing that's going through in the manila envelope it's that book that's the oh, book he's wow. reading at the end uh-huh. the revolt of the black athletes oh, so saw that film that was incredible Mm. Soderbergh filmed that all on a phone, on right? An iPhone, he, shot he, the whole thing. He had been out of the game. He was not. He didn't get enough cred for that movie. That was an incredible movie. <sighs> that if film. that movie came out right now, yeah, it would blow. I up. mean, yeah, and it just just came out. I mean, mm. so yeah, um, everybody goes see that film because it's super incredible. And then yeah, the book that is revealed at the end is the Revolt of the Black Athlete uh, by Dr. Harry Edwards. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, how to be an anti-racist, I think, is number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, this week. the whole bestseller list is <laughs> yeah, like white fragility books. <laughs> I know. Sea change for fueled, those writers. Fueled in part by you know a, a genuine desire to learn and expand our awareness, I think, and also fueled in part by you know white guilt. I suppose. <laughs> white too, you know? I'm glad you said it because yeah. there, there's certain things that you could say that I can't. And because I, I was, yeah. I read that and I was like, man. White people sure love to buy books that they don't ever <laughs> read, yo. Because I was like, that whole list was like white fragility, and I was like, it, it's it's funny, like, uh, you know, black folks like we we have we we see white folks, right? Uh-huh. We I may be invisible, I may be the invisible man, but like black folks have always had a purview. You're not on invisible, one. especially with that hair, <laughs> dude. Come on, see this? Yeah. Um, no, but it's funny to like go on to. Um, not message boards, those are scary, but like even in the comment section on social media or on Instagram mm. and see white people talking to each other oh, is like real comedy. It's just Dude, like, let's get, get some into popcorn. It. Yeah. And just to read like white comments with each other are real crazy. So the amount of performativity that's going on with white people, when like a white person posts the fragility book, the comments are like, I got that book. I can't wait to start it this Saturday. And yeah. I'm like, wow, every white person is about to examine their fragility every future Saturday. It's, uh-huh. like, <laughs> it's a weird thing that I think is new for a lot of white people that you guys have been living in forever. Um, there's a lot of you know performance virtue signaling out there for sure, um, but also a tremendous amount of, of white fragility. And I, I, you know, this is new to me. Um, I posted, I did, an, I did a podcast I put up a couple of days ago with my friend Adam Skolnick, who's white Jewish guy, and it was more of just a discussion about what's going on right now. Um, and I posted a clip from that on Instagram, and it has like you know 390 comments. And, and scrolling through that was a was an awakening, my friend. <laughs> you know, an awakening. Um, it, all over the map. Yeah, um, my friend uh, Dom Thompson. Uh, Black dude, friend of mine, uh, was like he chimed in on. He's like, man, there's so much white fragility in this comment section. And then he got like 41 comments underneath, right, that. just off that. And yeah, and he's just on the side, like, man. And everyone's you know, like, <laughs> a lot of like repressed rage, a lot of cheerleading, like all over the place. And it was very disorienting for me as somebody who doesn't court controversy and as somebody who feels like I'm I'm talking common sense to realize that. We really are divided as a country, and sure. there's a there's a plethora of perspectives on this issue, and it's all so supercharged at the moment. Yeah, um, that makes me afraid of our ability to move forward. Um, we can talk about optimism, you know, as we get into this, but um, you know, that's been an education for me. And I think as a as a white dude, like trying to figure out how to communicate around this is is tricky too. We were talking about this on the on the ride over here, like. You know, knowing, like, feeling strongly that I don't want to be silent and I want to be part of 
positive change. Also being sensitive that it's really not my place to, to you know, lead the charge at all. You know, like I, I wanna participate, but also being very conscious that this is not my movement, but also conscious that, that this is a problem that whites need to solve. Like black people are fine. You know, it's like, it's the white people that have to figure their shit out here. And that was what the clip was about. It's like, this is a white problem. And yeah. that was inflammatory for a lot of people. <laughs> right. So like, how do you think about this? Like, help me out here, man. Cause yeah. you know, <laughs> I, well, I'm still like laughing about the, you know, I'm still laughing about the white fragility reading yeah. lists, you know, and I, and I maybe, <laughs> maybe it's just that like, if you said like black people have always known it and I'm looking at all these authors who are writing the book, I was like, why are you telling people about white fragility? That's the one thing we had on him that was making it like tolerable. <laughs> you know? Uh -huh. um, but ah, it's man, it's disorienting all the way around in the in this moment. That's that's for sure. I mean, on one hand, it's a white problem, uh, but it's all it's our common culture. Sure. You know? So if we all in our country, so you know, whether we're thinking about you know, these divided states of America, or we're thinking about what our culture, our common culture means on a noumenal way, you know, in the course of like human history over the past, you know, 401 years, mm -hmm. then, um, then yeah, we all do have a, a stake in it. Yeah. Know? And what's, that's, what's weird about the tension about we're so divided. It's like, it's weird how evenly we're divided, even though there's all these subcultures and there may be minorities or whatever. It, it it's really electorally split, like 53, 47, 51, 49 on any given day, like on so many issues. Right. You know? And that kind of push me pull you is is really what it feels like a battle for hearts and minds. And really I think what what we're seeing like play out in real time in the comment section. I mean, it's funny right now on social media, it's not even the content you post. No offense to you. Mm -hmm. Your content's great. But like, it's really the, the works in the comment section. Sure. Yeah, that's know? where Yeah, that's where you break out the popcorn. That's, that's where you, you know? monetize. Like right. brands are like, what's going on in can there, Can I sponsor, yeah. can I sponsor comments? Well, no. <laughs> just to be clear, so so there's this false dichotomy, you know, you, you see this, this, this uh, rift, like people, you know, people say black lives matter and then you have a contingent of people who say all lives matter. Right. And I think we're getting better at understanding that, you know, that what that's all about. Yeah. But to say, um, is it, is it, is it analogous or not to say this is a white problem versus this is a human problem? You know, are those two things like black lives matter, all lives matter, white problem, problem of humanity? Like how do those things line up? Well, these are all like tags, right? These are all like linguistic cues that kind of redirect the listener's attention. So if- well, they're, they're dog whistles. Right, yeah. In their, in their respective ways. Yeah, right. Um, and not necessarily, you know, laden with the image, the, the, the energy of dog whistles that say the president uses, um, but in terms of the frequency that- certain people pick up. It's it's definitely a valid idea. So when you're thinking about what might constitute a white problem, I mean, you know, <laughs> if white people got a problem, everybody got a problem. <laughs> but uh, redirecting the attention to white people to own it or to have ownership of it mm. um, and to, again, work at solving it, work on dismantling the problem, 
that's like an interesting redirect. That's a crucial redirect, you mm -hmm. know? Um, like in an empathetic view, obviously like black people's problem is everybody's problem. Yeah. But um, the way <laughs> the way it's set up, you know, if you if you kind of like uh, personalize it just to black folks, then you're going to like lose out on a lot of people feeling invested in or having even any agency. I mean, that's that's what's weird. I mean, whether like whether there's like social justice warriors or people who are like recalcitrant and don't, you know, really want to like engage with these issues at all. Um, it, it, there has been like a real like neck snappingly swift realization. It feels like on, on the part of a lot of white people to like jump into this head on, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And it might be- Is that wrong headed or even if it's well-intentioned or- No, I mean, no, I mean, well-intentioned, like at this point we're taking it, you know uh -huh. what I mean? But like, how are we challenging? Sure. And channeling it in, in a way that's kind of like, you know, moving, moving forward, you know, like, um, everybody loves moonshots, you know? Um, but moonshots don't really exist, right? It's really the progress of incremental gains, marginal gains, um, that really brings us progress. But this situation right here might be one of those once in a lifetime moonshots, yeah. you know, where people yeah. are really being accelerated through so much, you know, there is that sense yeah. that we have an opening now that we haven't seen in our lifetimes. Yeah. And I think it would be tragic if we weren't able to figure out, you know, how to put that energy into, you know, the right avenue to make those changes. Yeah. And I think part of it is is, you know, my learning curve here has been really trying to understand the systemic aspect of this. Mm -hmm. Um I went and rewatched 13th the other night with my family. And it's just so powerful. Like it, it really contextualizes and explains and analyzes the systemic nature of this in a way that makes it, you know, impossible to avert your glance. Right. When you look at ALEC and the CCA and the way that the prison infrastructure is set up and the lobbying efforts and our whole political system being geared towards um, you know, these tectonic plates moving such that black people are disproportionately incarcerated and penalized, it's impossible to not understand that we need, you know, ground up change, like really fundamental systemic changes sure. in how we're operating. Yeah. And that has to that has to be a conversation. I mean, like there's, you know, it's great to have an electoral focus, but that process is fraught, obviously, um, as as the last presidential, several presidential elections has, has shown. Um, but also, uh, you know, there needs to be a community conversation, you know, rather than these things are hot button issues that are going to get resolved at a city council Zoom meeting, mm -hmm. you know, there needs to be sort of like a real simpatico energy where everybody is sort of conversant in these ideas for starters, mm -hmm. you know? But I feel like that's happening. Yeah. 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 So then what's the next step? Like, how do we, so we're having the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so we're having the conversation and, you know, it, it's, it's wild. I mean, it's already, things are so accelerated that right now, like downtown Seattle is like an autonomous zone. I know, <laughs> you know? I know. And, you I know, know, people are on 
flat bottom boats on Lake Havasu just doing donuts, right. living their life. So <laughs> the next step um, is is remains to be seen. But I've really kind of surprisingly just going back to to older models and I'm finding those are really resonating. So, you know, it's interesting to think about by older, what do you mean by well, older just, models? It's interesting to see what, like what people are saying in the sixties and seventies, you know, and we've kind of glamorized these figures and made them into posters and t-shirts and, and, and biopics, but going back and what were the Panthers talking about, you know, mm. what, going back and really looking like what was the social flux of the sixties and seventies trying to push forward and, mm-hmm. and those things, how do they get lost in the late seventies and eighties and what are all those forces? So, you know, there are some new models of, of being right now, but I think that there's also a lot to kind of uncover and rediscover and mm-hmm. what was kind of set down a couple of generations ago. Yeah. That was the other thing about 13th that made me, you know, made me realize that there's quite a bit of revisionist history when it comes to the Panthers and Angela Davis and Malcolm X and even Martin Luther King, like sure. what we're taught in school or led to uh, led to believe and understand, isn't quite the reality of how that all went down. Yeah, I mean, and and why not, right? I mean, if if we were choosing between Barack Obama and a guy who in 1982 or 1983 voted against the establishment of Martin Luther King Jr. as a holiday when he was senator of Arizona, that was just, you know, a couple of decades ago, you know, mm-hmm. and, and rest in peace, John, uh, uh, John McCain. But um, it, it, it really is interesting that like, we don't even have like a clear picture of King and he's like got a statue and stamps, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So definitely um, understanding King's legacy and, um, Malcolm X's legacy and the legacy of the Panthers. I mean, it's amazing to see Angela Davis so active. Right. I mean, I'm looking on Instagram and she's like, Fierce every other post is she's ever. everywhere. I yeah. was like, sis, hydrate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's probably your two thirty. I mean, slot. that scene <laughs> in Thirteenth when she comes into the courtroom with her big afro yeah. and like it's just it's so powerful. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, really, and 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 you know. Maybe I'll keep redirecting the convo to talk about people's reading lists, but you could just have like a reading list of the women, you know, like women in the early 70s, black women in the early 70s who are coming out of the Panther movement. You know what I mean? So, you know, we know Angela Davis, but I mean, Asada Shakur's autobiography is essential reading. Um, Elaine Brown, um, you know, Erica Huggins, like all these, uh, Kathleen Cleaver, all these I- I- incredibly storied women and and had wildly rich lives, whether, you know, they were you know, political actors or militants or, um, you know, freedom fighters, you know, who, who are still around today. Yeah. Super fascinating. So we could just reset the whole New York Times list right now and put like Asada's, Asada's biography at the top, you know? Well, give me a reading list. I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Okay. For sure. When you were first on the podcast, I was like, Couple of years ago, two years mm-hmm. ago, uh, we went through your your whole story. And people who are newer to the show, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. I thought that was a really great conversation. But you know, one of the one of the seminal kind of moments in your life was being a student under Maya Angelou, and you told these beautiful stories about what that experience was like. I'm curious. I, I would suspect that 
you know, her words and her kind of, I don't know if mentorship is too strong a word, but her presence in your life must, you know, be percolating to the surface right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think about it all the time. Um, and she was such um, a heavy presence that I, w- I wish it was different. You know what right. I mean? I wish like, you know, you can't you choose your mentors. You can't choose your mentors, yeah. you know? Um, you wish you'd shown up for that dinner at her house. Oh gosh. I mean, <laughs> I just, you know, like it's interesting to think that she gave the inaugural poem um, at the first Clinton inauguration. So like whatever our feelings about the Clinton presidency, to think that Dr. Angela was this presence on the National Mall um, that cold morning in uh, January of, I guess, 93. Yeah. I Um, I mean, I remember reading that poem on the pulse of morning um, as a high school student. And I guess at that time I thought I was going to, you know, study at Wake Forest University. Um, But I wasn't really putting the pieces together. And so now even that poem on the pulse of morning, um, I've kind of gone back and like started to unpack it. And it is very like 90s identity politics and diversity and bringing people together. And if you have any sort of like hand-wringing ambivalence about that now, um, maybe it's just the result of how hardened we've become recently and how bitter and sour we've been, we've, we've mm-hmm. become, you know, if we're kind of reading these things and be like, ah, what is she talking about? Maybe it's actually, you know, worthy of a second look, mm-hmm. um, you know, because really Dr. Angela was just, um, a, a vessel of so many experiences and so many voices, you know, I was reflecting recently talking to somebody about it and they say John Milton was the last person to have ever read anything on the planet. I mean, read, have read everything. Yeah. Right? yeah everything yeah, yeah, that yeah. had been written. Yeah. And, you know, I'm like, right, bro. Like, you, you weren't <laughs> in the libraries at Timbuktu, <laughs> you know, but you know, as far as a white guy, he had read what white people had put down. Uh-huh. I dig it. Um, that's what Dr. Angela was like, though. She was just like carried within her, I guess, as the the phrasing goes, multitudes, you know, I guess, um, as Wordsworth would say, like, you know, she really had that. And it was just like spilling out of her, um, ideally, mm-hmm. <laughs> at, at, a, at every occasion. So, yeah, I'm definitely thinking about her and her legacy at this, at this time. Yeah. Who are the um, poets right now that you think are speaking to culture? in a profound way. You know, honestly, quarantine's been an amazing time to to reflect on that. And, you know, there's this poet, <laughs> I'm a writer, you know, yeah. so you're envious of, uh, of <laughs> other writers. Um, but uh, but I, 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 those are just my own appetites, you know, but mm-hmm. there's this person, Dane Smith, who um, has written this incredible book called Homie. I've been... I, as I was leaving the house from Brooklyn to go to Mexico City, I took four or five books with me. And, you know, this writer is not only putting down some really lacerating poetry um, early on in their career, but they're in Minneapolis. Like, they're from Minneapolis. Mm. And so Dane Smith is, like, walking around Minneapolis kind of, like, document on day one. I was like, wait, my favorite poet, like, the most essential poet you know, working right now is on the ground with a mask on documenting and like getting resources out to people. And so 
that's the kind of um, responsibility that I think if artists and writers do have any responsibility at all, I think that's sort of what my vein is when you're kind of looking at writers kind of coming out of a, a Latin American tradition or like a black American tradition. It's not just I'm graduating from an MFA program and I'm like writing my carefully sculpted verses over here in my Garrett apartment at an artist colony, but, you know, I'm an omnivore and mm. I'm working on poetry and essays and book reviews. And, you know, I mean, w we know Langston Hughes as a poet, but if you think about the buddy flick of Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston driving around the American South writing stories of like regular people's lives and filing them as dispatches to gazettes back up in the north. That's kind of like, yeah. you know, that's that's a, a that's the work of a writer, you yeah. know? And so to think that um, an incredible poet is there active on the ground, you know, kind of documenting the 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 wildness in in Minneapolis is, is incredible. Yeah. As a writer yourself, have you been putting your thoughts down? Like, how are you approaching this as a creative person? Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's tough because you really want to open your aperture like as wide as you can and just record everything and remember everything, you know? I guess almost in the way that you think like the, the earliest cameras operated before, mm -hmm. <laughs> before it was like a microchip thing. If you kind of just think about the actual crude mechanics of a light box capturing an image and preserving it on film or paper, you know, is, is sort of like what the work of a writer is. Um, but especially in the wake of the Ahmaud Arbery killing, it's, it's rather poignantly reset for me, my own relationship with writing, my own responsibility with writing. Um, and so, yeah, I've really been doing personal work, thinking about um, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, mm -hmm. um, specifically as a runner, that was so impactful to, to so many of us, obviously in running culture, but obviously uh, around the world. But um, yeah, it's something I can't shake. And so I've been doing a lot of writing, like poetry actually, or just writing around yeah. that to think long-term, like what, what would I have to share and contribute that would sort of connect with that guy's life, you know? Yeah. Well, let's talk about Ahmad. I mean, that one is of particular, you know, pertinence because you're a runner, right? And yeah. you, I read this article um, that was in Runner's World recently where you were quoted and you said, in some ways I can't escape the sense that Ahmad Arbery was killed because he was running, because he was that literal embodiment of our freedom that's obviously still so threatening to many people in this country. Yeah. I mean, I'll love to be wrong. I'll love to kind of like meditate that idea away or like age that idea away uh -huh. or, or, or write that idea away. But I, uh, I can't shake it and, you know, sit back and watch this trial, these trials and, you know, see what happens over the course of due process. But I just can't stop thinking about the dramaturgy or the, the theatric, the staging of, of those last minutes, you know? Um, and I think what it was when the video first came out, obviously it was, it's devastating to watch. Um, 
but uh, you know, the work is to expand your aperture. So like how much can you take in? How much can mm-hmm. you hold? You know, it's not just about Milton and Dr. Angela reading a bunch of books, but like how much can you actually hold? Um, and uh, I, I've been I've been black my whole life, right? So and I and I and I'm well familiar with extrajudicial killings of black American men in the United States. I was seeing a runner, and I can't I can't get over like the way his body moved as a runner on that film in the last moments. It's something that like I think every runner relates to, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you have a body, you're a runner. <laughs> and so if you're a runner, then you're relating to Ahmaud Arbery because it just looked like, it just looked like he was trying to like continue running. You know, when you, you know, when you're going down the sidewalk and like someone's not paying attention, you know, with their Datsun or, you know, or someone's veering and you're just kind of like, Take you're focused on completing step. your run. You're mm-hmm. just like that. I just can't stop replaying that image of him just at the, those last moments when he just goes to the right. I just, the way his hips cut and the knees. And I was like, wow, that's my body, you know? Um, yeah. And uh, I'm kind of been exploring that and writing around that and, and kind of thinking about starting there and then moving out to to think about the messages that his his life and his legacy kind of hold for us. Yeah. I've said this before, but you know, as a runner myself, I've run in, you know, tons of cities all over the world. Never once has it ever occurred to me that I might be in jeopardy or that my life might might be threatened by strapping on a pair of running shoes and leaving whatever hotel I'm in to go explore a city I've never been in before. Um, but you know, as a black American and as a runner, and also as somebody who's incredibly well-traveled, you've been all over the world, you, get to, you have this incredible life where you get to spread the culture of running wherever you go. Like, I don't know how all that works, but like, you have a cool <laughs> fucking life. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, obviously you have a different relationship to that. Like that is something that you have to think about. So, uh, you know, help me understand, uh, you know, the psychology of that. Like when you're going out to run, like what goes through your mind and, you know, w- what do you have to do to make sure that you're safe? Like what is that that experience that's relatable to, you know, every black American who wants to go run? Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually... It's it's actually super complicated because, you know, we're in a running boom and so a lot of people are getting into running now. And so in addition to all the other challenges of of getting into running, your body rebelling against you, where do you go? Like, how do you do it? Like, mm. it's the most simple thing that we have in the human toolkit, but like, how do you get started? Um, but I've been talking to like a, a, a lot of brothers, a lot of brothers and sisters who have been doing it our whole lives or like who are school age athletes. And I think a lot of us actually have like a different relationship with it than has been reported in the media. And I think that a lot of us are so proud to be runners or so proud to do it that it's such a, like um, an inviolable piece of our identity that when we go out to run, it's, it's, like, a, it's like such a symbol of pride, you know? Um, it, it, it feels you know, like an example, like a a physical example of black excellence. I mean, the way you feel, you know, 
the way you feel when you have a good run, you know, I think for a lot of us is actually tied to mm-hmm. feeling good to be black, you know, or like kind of residing in in these bodies that we're blessed with. So um, I don't I don't have like a, a fraught relationship with going out for a run. I mean, are there sort of, I mean, obviously I can give you like a litany of racist experiences that I've had yeah, while sure running. I'm sure you've had a ton of those. <laughs> you, know? you read like, well, if you're going to do that, then you should wear a t-shirt with a university name on it or something, some, some kind yeah. of signaling. I mean, like, if it I'm comes safe, down to- I'm a safe black person. <laughs> yeah. Look, running's hard no, enough. Like, like you, know. you can line up excuses, but if yeah. like, I got to put on an Ivy League shirt to go for a run, <laughs> I might take up ceramics or uh-huh. like some other kind you of You don't thing. think about that then. No, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, I- and, and well, You put the black roses stuff on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I if I really got a flash on it, but uh-huh. I I honestly think that um, that in recent years, as I've thought more about why it is I run or like what it means or what is the experience, I've I've come to understand that like you know honestly the the black body moving through space is such a wild image to people and. When you're a kid trying not to get cut from the track team, if you're trying to like not finish last in the two mile, you ain't thinking about uh-huh. <laughs> you, you're, you're thinking about like you don't want to let down John Carlos and Tommy Smith. Like yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. you're in the two mile, yeah. like I can't finish last because then what would Edward Moses think? Um, but you know, now I'm thinking about it and I just see that like the reactions that people have when I run by, whether I'm in Brooklyn and Bed-Stuy, if I'm in a black neighborhood or if I'm in a, in a, in a white neighborhood or, or in a different country, just I feel that the image of like a black man running is one of the most sudden and visually arresting images that people might be confronted with. That's not my idea. That's just what I'm seeing mm. and experiencing, you know? And I was like, why is that triggering? Why are like people almost hitting their car? I mean, this is like, if you're running, if you're training, <laughs> if you run a hundred miles a week, that's a lot of people you're, you're passing. You're seeing a lot of people. You're seeing yeah. a lot of people. And so there's a constant sort of like stop and stare. And sometimes in your vanity, you know, someone's checking you out, then you're feeling yeah, good. Like, I you wish know I, I mean? could look like that and run like that. Guy. Right. You know, so, okay, cool. You take that. Or but, I'm going to cross the street. Yeah. I, well, yeah. I mean, you know, when you're fit, <laughs> you're faster than them. So what's, I, we, what's weird, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. like what's weird is that, you know, look, running is dominated by, by blacks and African-Americans across the board from the hundred meters all the way up, right? Like at the highest level, at the yeah. elite level. And historically it's rooted in black culture and African culture. But in America, it's sort of this white thing, right? Which is a, a strange, it's like, you know, we think of it, we don't think of it in terms of its ancestral roots. Yeah, I mean. It's elite level. Yeah, and I, and I think that, you know, Lately, I just sound embarrassing, like an old, like, curmudgeon Marxist or something like that. But I think in terms of, like, a late capitalist critique of what happened in, in the running boom coming out of the 70s and 80s, you know, it really was running. Popular running was reduced down to this idea of, like, this is something that rich white guys uh-huh. do. And so I have to keep resetting because a lot of us don't even think that. Like yeah. you talk to brothers around the way and we're like, this is like what I do. This is cool. So when we joked, you know, on our, on our first kind of conversation together, I just grew up that way. Um, 
not only do I think that that's quaint, but also I keep going back to bring something of that into the present day and reckon, yeah. and, and suggest that, you know, far from these articles about like running has always been white or like jogging has always been a white sport. I don't, I don't really. Right. I, really I mean, know. you grew up, your dad would go to the 10 Ks and like joke around with his buddies. And that sure. was kind of the culture that you grew up in. But one of the things that I love that you do on Instagram is you'll find old ads from like the seventies from running magazines yeah. and stuff like that. And you'll, you'll show them and yeah. you, you see the sort of historical, you know, chronicle of like how running was portrayed to the public, you know, sure. with like the latest pair of shoes or running shorts and stuff like sure. that. And sure. it's super fascinating. Yeah. To see yeah. how it's being depicted. Right. Well, of course, like, you know, America loves using black people and black culture as like marketing forces. So even in this, uh, the Michael Spino book, uh, Inner, Inner Running, right? Uh, or uh -huh. Beyond Jogging, like this super esoteric 70s kind of cult book about jogging. They had a brother on the cover. And so when I met uh, Mike Spino, I was like, yeah, man, I mean, you were coming out of the Esalen Institute. You put a black dude on the cover of this mystical book about running. He's like, that's John Carlos. He wasn't happy about that. Mm. <laughs> so, I was like, yeah. so it's John Carlos. But um, but yeah, so I my understanding of it is that there's just always been that kind of representation all the way along until, you know, maybe 80s and 90s. Yeah, when I look back at my training logs, or when you look back at, you know, the magazines of the day, there there wasn't really kind of any representation or diversity, yeah. but it was happening. You know, the conversations were there. Um, again, it's, it's weird to keep referring to Instagram, but I follow some of these high school heroes or these guys that I would follow. America's Best in the 90s, Bob Kennedy, um, Todd Williams, and... Uh, uh, on Instagram. And mm -hmm. now it's kind of cool to see how your legends ended up. This dude, Bob Kennedy, he's from Indiana. He's Indiana, like born and bred. That was just like his thing. He posted this thing the other day talking about Steve Holman. Steve Holman was this black dude who was America's best miler, you know, more or, mm -hmm. or less the best miler in the mid nineties when I was kind of coming up. Um, and whatever happened with the Olympic schedule of every four, he never, never won a gold or anything right. like that, but he definitely was that guy cover of runner's world, whatever, handsome. And, uh, man, just last week, Bob Kennedy posted this anecdote about riding around with Steve Holman at a, a track meet in Los Angeles in the nineties. And like the discrimination that like Steve Holman was getting, coming out of the hotel and people checking IDs. And it was so crazy to hear about a story of my heroes in 1994 experiencing something that I was struggling with as a young runner at the same time. And to know that like Bob Holman and, 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 um, you know, these, these athletes were experiencing this, but that it was also that conversation. Steve Holman and, and Bob Kennedy were having this conversation and Holman saying to Kennedy, like, you know, yeah, this is like my reality. And if you're right. not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And that's And your sense was that somebody like that must 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 have transcended that. Like he can't be having to deal with the stuff that I'm having to deal with. Well, you never it never even got that far. He's on the cover of the magazine and he's got like a, you know, winning smile and uh -huh. you're looking at his times. You know, you're not kind of looking at to him for like lessons of like perseverance, you know, on a, on a cultural level, on a political level. So honestly, it kind of 
broke me a little bit to read this story of these guys who were young and pursuing their dreams, you know, um, and, and I, and I, and that's what I am personally sort of obsessed with, you know, like when we're thinking about black Americans representing the United States on an international level, or just walking down the street and representing America, you know, what does that mean? I mean, so we know it's easy to think about John Carlos and Tommy Smith on the podium in 1968, winning gold medals in, in the 200. But what did it mean for Ted Corbett to represent the United States in the marathon as a black mar- as a black man in America at the 1956 games in Helsinki? Mm. You know, so what was his life like? If if Brown versus Board of Ed was early 50s, right, and then Emmett Till, uh, Emmett Till's ghastly murder and an appearance on the cover of, of yeah. the magazine was 55, 54, 54 50, 55. Yeah. And then Ted Corbett is like wearing the USA singlet in the marathon, you know, in 1956 in Helsinki. What was his life like? I mean, PSA about Ted Corbett, just really, it, it's tough to think about running being always a white man's sport. If this guy was the founding president of New York Roadrunners, if this man was the architect behind the the Five Borough New York City Marathon course that's celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. I mean, a superlative American, Ted Corbett. Yeah, but I, I really don't know his story. Like that story isn't being told. <laughs> we need that on the New York Times bestseller list. But I mean, this guy had the, the longest streak of uh, sub three hour performances at Boston. I mean, the guy's like, nine, like 19, like just... Mm whatever, and was active up into his 80s. Mm. Um, just an incredible ambassador for the sport, clean eating and, you know, like, he, like he's he's one of those guys you read about like in, in the, you know, sadly short Black History Month. This guy, in addition to all these other exploits, also invented the course measurement system uh, that's used on bicycles to measure, you know, that USATF will use oh, wow. to like measure courses uh-huh. empirically. So, um, this is like a wild American. Interesting note about Ted Corbett, he was also a member of the New York Pioneer Club. Um, and the New York Pioneer Club was America's first integrated sports club that, um, yeah, integrated in the the decade before Jackie Robinson integrated Major League Baseball. So oh, wow. this kind of legacy of of multicultural participation, of black American representation in athletics is – is something that is definitely up for revision for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of your big mantras is, and we talked about this last time, is you know running is an act of rebellion, right? So now, in light of current events, like how do you contextualize that statement? Like how does that apply towards you know your perspective and the role of advocacy around what, what we've seen unfold? You know, honestly, in a difficult way, um, in a quiet way, thinking about uh, Amar Arbery's last day, you know, he was 25 and what would would John Mayer say, quarter life crisis? He's 25, you know, think about what we were doing when we were 25 or what people are doing, figuring out your life, like you're letting go of, you know, 
the ideals you had of who you were as a teenager in high school and thinking about what it means to be an adult. And man, instead of sitting around on the couch, like smoking weed, you know what I mean? Being depressed, like the dude put on his, you know, not to say he was sitting around being depressed or, or whatever, but I just think all of us, you hit that, those stages in your life where you need to figure it out. And we know that you can figure it out through running. And I can't get over the sense that like, like all of us, like all runners, it's a vehicle for us to see goals in the future. It's a vehicle for us to, it's to, to see, you know, mm -hmm. to imagine. Um, and so I keep thinking that, well, that's rebellion, right? Because it's easier for us if we're just going to be like a digit. It's easy for us if our politicians are just going to want us to not show up to the polls. If, you know, um, companies just take us for granted that we're going to consume whatever food they put in a package on the shelf, you know, um, that we're not going to patronize our own establishment that have like been on this corner for 20 or 30 years and a box store can come and replace it. So anytime we're not doing that, anytime we're reinvesting in like the human community and our own communities and we're circulating our dollars in our communities, that's rebellion in this mm -hmm. kind of like late stage capitalist death row that we're, we're locked in right now. You know, yeah, and and, and Amart Arbery was doing that, and the idea that yeah, black man triggering freedom, triggering, um, but also that's just a symbol of freedom, and that and I'm agency, yeah, like I actually, I cannot, you know, can't get my car out of the shop, I can't change this school loan bill today, you know, I can't kind of like, uh, you know, change climate today, but like, what can I do today? You know, mm -hmm. and, and a run might not even figure any of that stuff out, but a run might be literally and figuratively the first steps to figuring some of those things out, you know? Yeah. Well, there's running to something and then there's running from something, Yeah. right? So running from the cops, yeah. that's its own form of rebellion, <laughs> I guess, right? It's its own fitness. Running you know? to, to something implies, you know, sort of self-investment, positive change. Like I'm, I'm looking for answers. I'm grappling with, you know, identity. Yeah. I mean, know. so when people say that, that yeah, running is, is like a, a, a white thing. I mean, the idea of running is so deeply bound up in the story of black Americans that it's, it's such a, it's such a metaphor for us, which is why like preachers talk about it in the pulpit, which is why, you know, rappers kind of like reach for it as a metaphor in their verses. So it, it's interesting to to kind of restore it and situate it to look at the ways in which it's like a profoundly American thing, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, and I think interestingly, we're also seeing a moment in which we're realizing that things that Again, like you, you brought up revision, you know, our, our own revisionist history. You know, there's certain things that fell outside of the canon of, of uh, Euro-American cultural values, you know. Like th one of the things about white supremacy is that it's so predicated on this narrow idea. I mean, it's a totally concocted, fabricated idea, right? Like what's a white person? Mm -hmm. Like um, uh, that it also necessarily – excluded 
all other forms of supremacy, all other forms of culture and existence. And so from the very beginning of this culture, of this country's, um, you know, birth, so many of these practices that black Americans were engaged in were kind of excluded from the narrative. So um, fabric arts might be considered making clothes, you know, mm. um, and African hair art, you know, um, hair braiding um, that we brought with us from from Africa um, might just, you know, not only be considered hair braiding, but was so threatening on like, you know, the, the slave plantation system that even that was sort of forbidden, you know. Um, so the things that we were practicing during uh, African enslavement and then, you know, uh, in, the, in the decades since um, – were, were sort of excluded from the narrative of what could be art and what could be creativity and what could mm. be expression. And so this is a bit of a leap, but I think where I'm at right now is like looking at running as, as expression, you know, like uh, along the lines of dance, you know, like uh, the, the movement as expression and movement as an art you know right. it's, it's 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 okay to call it a sport it's okay to celebrate at the olympics uh-huh. and put a label on it but when you're calling it sport it's able to kind of push it over to the side and be like ah that's something that those folks do mm-hmm. but what if we're like looking at the movement arts next to the visual arts next to the sonic arts you know and so i kind of I'm thinking about running now in the context of sculpture, in the context of like, you know, Miles Davis's work, in the context of meditation practice, rather than just kind of like, you know, doing quarters around the track. So yeah, I mean, there's a there is a beauty and a poetry to that, and there are certainly performances that stand out as examples of that, like whether it's Edwin Moses, right. you know hurdling or Usain Bolt running the 100 meter dash or Kipchoge, you know, breaking the two hour mark. Like those, those are pieces of performance art, undoubtedly. And when you're, you know, kind of recounting these various art forms, you know, I can't help but think about how um, music is distinct from that. Like when, when certain art forms percolated up that did resonate with white culture, they were immediately appropriated and, and repackaged in a different way. So anytime like something kind of crept, oh, well, like that, actually that might be something, like let me grab that and I'll take that and I'll present it to the public in a kind of mainstream way that's digestible for them. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of grow up knowing that as a, as a black person, like a white man took everything. You yeah, know? yeah. So well, it's the trope but, of Elvis and all yeah, that. Yeah, you know? but but I'm seeing it like all over the place now. Um, you know, not only in the work that you know, maybe even I've been doing in running culture for the past ten years, <laughs> to see how you know that, along with the efforts of a small group of people working in urban running, has shifted marketing campaigns of multinational corporations. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, that's your fault. It's my, my <laughs> fault. Um, so yeah, definitely apologize to the ancestors like for that It's one. cool to have like a bridge runners you know, yeah. team now in right? your city and stuff like, like that. I mean, and, and it's and like I, Black Rose is like, 
Last time you we did the pie, I, th- I thought like, I'm gonna ask him for a Black Roses jersey. And I was like, no, I can't, I can't not unless I'm part of the team because I know you don't give those out. Right, you know, it's right. like, you gotta be in the deal. Yeah, I'm trying to you hold know? on to that, know. you know? or and, and then, you know, like Jessica Simpson, just like sell it and like produce it in right. a sweatshop and like get rich or whatever. But yeah, for now, uh, it, it's, it's that kind of idea. But yeah, for it's wild to have watched brands. I mean, people just don't know like, you know, nod to to the the articles about like running has been a white thing. There was just like no black people on the pages. Mm-hmm. And now you go through a page of or running ads, and it's just like you think it's only black people. If you if you were to judge running, you know, by its ads, you would think only black people do it because uh. that's how heavily marketed uh. they're using using black folks now. You know, but I I'm not even kind of like. Yeah, it's you got to look outside of running for inspiration to kind of like figure out your way forward with running. And and in this quarantine time, it's been wild to just kind of again, I'm on so many different like IG lives. Like it's like going back to school, you know? Yeah. And so I've been seeing really fascinating conversations with you know, black ceramicists and looking at the the connections between, you know, pottery and and running or you know i thought about coming and rapping to you about this but even the the tradition of barbecue in black culture you know is super fascinating and to look at the ways in which that's been gentrified you know i was watching this there's a super fascinating barbecue expert named uh, howard conyers Mm. i think is his name and he's from South Carolina lives in New Orleans now, and I'm so impacted by listening to this guy speak. First of all, he's literally a rocket scientist. He's gone and works in a jet propulsion engine lab or whatever, but he's also a master at barbecue. And the historical research that he's doing to show that like Africans were introducing pit barbecue techniques in 16th century Mexico. Oh, wow. Like- Mexicans are going to be mad when I'm back in Mexico. Like, you think black people invented barbacoa? And, I, you know, that's like, <laughs> yeah. you know you're pro-black. Yeah. I know people be like, Knox is really pro-black. But, like, you know you're pro-black when you're walking around Mexico like, we invented that, man. Mm. <laughs> so shout out to all my peoples in, in Mexico. Like, yeah. respect to the cuisine. But I'm really looking at the ways in which even our own practices that we've been doing here uh, in the Americas has just been kind of like subsumed by the dominant culture. Hair braiding, for instance, obviously uh, just a symbol of, of, of black elegance and, and communication that we brought with us from Africa. Um, Bo Derek is like a classic example of cornrows right. kind of going crazy. Uh, iconic yeah. image. It's tough to be mad at Bo Derek. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, if you want to like, like rail against white people and Bo Derek's up there with you know, right. braids on. It's like, yeah. You gotta like, be of a certain age though. That movie, 10. Well, I mean, again though, but it's just wild to see the ways in which like in running, um, that white women have appropriated African hairstyles um, or African-American hairstyles um, and and sometimes not even understanding, um, I've seen folks call it race braiding. <laughs> mm. And I was like, wow, you know, not only are you kind of like really co-opting these kind of super rich cultural expressions from black women in America who are paying the cost for that, who are, you know, suffering um, from unfair and discriminatory hiring practices and and pay practices. Uh, 
you know, not just because of their hair, but because of who they are. But to kind of just like take wholesale um, black hairstyles and then just like use that as like your lucky hairdo for your marathon is 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 offensive, you know, and is is cultural appropriation. So even in running, which is simple, just lacing up and going down the road, is 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 rife with cultural appropriation that like that is worthy of investigation for sure. Well, every art form, every trend is built upon the legacy of some pre-existing form, right? Yeah. So, you know, if you extrapolate that argument, everything is appropriation. So at what point does the appropriation or the nod to the forebears, you know, become inappropriate? And like, what is the responsible ethical way to you know, basically embrace multiculturalism. Like, I think that's a, that's like an area where a lot of people don't know where the ground is firm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, and it's not sexy, but it really is a question of attribution, um, and respect. And so now in these days, when people are talking about the phrase, you know, do the work, knowing sort of, you know, you don't want to, to be a nerd like me <laughs> and kind of just be like, making all these connections. But, you know, you really do have to understand you brought up the example of Elvis. I mean, kind of taking in rhythm and blues music and stripping away all its labeling and then repackaging it for something that you want to market in a different kind of way. That's, I think, probably where the disconnect is, mm. you know. So if we're understanding that um, Picasso and George Brock were getting was we're getting so much influence from African sculpture, you know, when they were working at that time, then we're understanding Picasso a little bit more and we're also problematizing our sense of of what genius is rather than thinking this is like the greatest artist of all time, looking at Picasso as as a link in the chain and someone who you might put his work up as museums are doing now, his work up next to the work of Faith Ringgold, you know, like how artists can not only be just contemporaries in the studio or at a moment in time, but also thematic yeah. and cultural mm -hmm. contemporaries and in cultural conversation. You Juxtaposing know? those against the influences. Yeah, for sure. So I think it's, again, they always say it's a, it's a question of re influences, you uh -huh. know? And so I think that when we're respecting um, where we're, when we're respecting our inspirations, when we, when we're acknowledging where our inspirations um from from whence they came, then I think that that's a huge step towards kind of like, again, dismantling some of these white supremacist practices like cultural appropriation. Mm. So in a very practical sense, if there's a woman who wants to, you know, cornrow her hair for her marathon, yeah. how is she supposed to provide that um, attribution in a respectful way? Well, it, you know, I mean, might be economics, right? You might want to pay a black woman to do it, you know, rather than say like, you know, if this is how black women in our communities make their living with hair braiding salons, let's patronize those businesses and give credit to that. Like the idea that like, this is how I braided my hair in high school, you know, and so this is what I'm going to do. That That's not exactly the same thing. Now it should be said that like women around the world have always braided their hair in intricate fashion. 
Um, and so some braiding techniques coming out of Scandinavia, culturally demonstrable. Um, so I'm not trying to take it and, and legislate, yeah, you yeah. know, uh, of this, but, you know, and also I think that taking pause and thinking how other people might feel, you know, um, is, is not only one of the calls to action for this moment that, that hopefully will go forward, but I think that that's like the work we need to do now. So, you know, really think, how do I make space for other people? How do I make other people feel comfortable, you know, mm-hmm. um, again, to, to say in running or something like that, like how do we create a more just space in, in, yeah. in our, in our communities? Yeah. Um, I'm interested in, in kind of what unity and allyship looks like to you. Like I'm, you know, just sitting here thinking I'm a white dude, you know, I'm privileged. I come from a certain background. Um, we're in this moment and I really want to be as open as possible and as teachable as possible. I want to fully understand the breadth and the depth of what we're contending with right here. Um, and I want to be an ally. And I'm very, you know, I find myself feeling cautious or somewhat paralytic around what to say and what to do for fear of misstepping in a culture in which, you know, a slight misstep on Instagram or in public uh, is met with, you know, what we were talking about before. And not that I really, you know, care that much about any of that. I really, what I want to, what I do care about is like getting this right. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in, in, you know, what that looks like from somebody of your perspective. That's, that's an interesting thing. And I think that's something that a lot of us are, are thinking about. Um, and one of the things about double consciousness is, is that I, I wasn't really thinking about that situation you just described, you know, like, I don't think, um, a lot of black Americans that I've been in conversation with over, over my life have been really talking about paralytic white guilt, right? You yeah. know, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so the, 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 this, <laughs> the, the wave of, of communications uh-huh. in the past several weeks has been really fascinating. Um, let me make it about me. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> like I was like, here's the thing, like, it's so funny because all the white dudes are freaking out right now, trying yeah. to figure out what to say and what not to say. Yeah. And my black friends are like, relax, man. Yeah. Like, We've been waiting for you. It's cool. Yeah. It's just <laughs> like, how do I get it right? I was yeah. like, we're not counting on you to get it right. Don't yeah, worry. Like, yeah. just chill out, you know, join in. Um, yeah, the whole paralytic idea of getting it right. So I, I didn't even, even know, you know, like when after the the um, George Floyd killing, when, when, you know, black, when before we were really aware, and it was happening daily, right? You know, like our experiences mm. and our understanding of the moment. Um, was setting in. So when there was like so much like white silence, I was like, oh, okay, cool. White, white, white people don't have anything to say. Okay, cool. And it was actually a real vacuum, a real deafening silence. It was actually really incredible because it was able to, I was able to just think about the life of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd without so much noise, mm-hmm. you know, and I was able to reach out and connect to like other black people in that space and just have these emotional connections. And what were those conversations like? 
you know, they were uncomfortable because, you know, you really have to, I mean, like everybody has divestment that they need to consider. So you really have to kind of like let go of machismo or you like these kind of like chauvinistic ideas of, of our own vulnerability and fragility. Um, and so I just reached out and just like, honestly, I think it was like the Tuesday after George Floyd, I just called and like texted like a lot of black men in my life. I wasn't like on Instagram. I wasn't, you know, doing much except that. And I wasn't that I was just like saying that to my friends or my family, you know, it was that I was doing it to people that I respected from a distance. Mm -hmm. I was reaching out to people that I know didn't really like me too much. And I just wanted to like say, and it wasn't even cut and paste. I was actually going through and I was like reaching out to someone and just saying like, Hey, just want to let you know for these qualities. I just want to let you know on today that I love you. Cause I think that, it was just like my instinct spiritually, emotionally, that like black men needed to hear it. Black women need to hear it every day of their lives. But black men, you know, the day after watching or the day of watching video of this this man getting killed, you know, over the course of eight minutes and 46 seconds um, needed to know that they were loved. And so that was like a really emotionally exhausting process that I went through on that day. Um so that was, <laughs> and then it took a few days to recover from that. So then by the time the weekend rolled around and I saw, you know, like white women yogis were like hosting Zoom chats for people to examine fragility, then I was cool. I was like, oh, white people got this. White people are just going to talk to each other. They're not going to bother me at all. So I'm good. I was mm-hmm. like, it went from like white silence to like white people talking to each other. It was great. That Monday hit. That cat, that bell rang on Wall yeah. Street. Every every black person's <laughs> phone starts ringing. Knox, I need Yo, you to get on a plane listen, and come talk to me on the podcast. I was like, oh, white people, <laughs> white people are silent on this. That's terrible. I'm angry, but it's also like a nice little respite from white people. Ding 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 ding. The phone was hot from like mm. Monday 8 a.m. Like white people needed their materials <laughs> reviewed. You know what I mean? So, so. Um, or they need Knox to tell me that I'm okay. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, that's not. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not job. that kind of guy. Like, yeah. I'm not. I, I'm not. That's uh-huh. not me. So, so that was like a, a, a process um, that you know I was kind of awkwardly and begr- begrudgingly negotiating. And then the third week, white people had it figured out already. So then I was like, oh, now white people are like. Black Square Tuesday and companies like black people. We've got it figured out. Here's. 10k here's uh-huh. 40 million like cool like you know what i mean so it was really swift the way uh the fumblings of of people's responses or brands responses to kind of this this tragedy that, yeah. that kind of we're all It is an awkward with. fumble though because you know i found i'm i'm finding myself doing the same thing like like i said like i'm grappling with how to communicate around this and and also um you know getting honest about diversity on my own platform. Like I talked about this the other day, like I like to think that I've had a wide variety of diverse voices on my podcast, but when I'm objective about it and I measure it up against the 520 plus podcasts that I've had, it's predominantly white. Like I have a lot of growth there, right? So what do I do? Well, I get out, you know, my 
contact list and I and I scour Twitter and I look for interesting voices. And then, you know, you're the one who gets the phone call among other people. And that's weird too. Like, oh, now I'm gonna call Knox. You, you know, I know. And it's cool and I'm glad that you're here and it's awesome. Um, but like, does that feel like when you got that call from me, were you feeling like, oh, this is this is somewhat opportunistic also? You know what I mean? Like, you know what I'm getting at? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can't you, you can't overlook it. You know mm. what I mean? Like, uh, as Richard Pryor oh, once I haven't, said. I haven't, heard, I haven't talked to Rich since we did that retreat, <laughs> you know, like now he's calling me, you know? Yeah, but I mean, you know, we're, we're cool. Like, I, I feel like the bond that we have as as dudes and as as runners and as athletes and writers and, and kind of like engaged humans on the planet, yeah, you're taking that mm. call, you mm. know? Um, but but I was thinking like that's one idea to like reach out and like us to connect. But um, there's this movie Putney Swope. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Yeah, but, it's been uh, a long time. Yeah, right. So everybody go back and rewind this movie because I keep thinking about it all the time. You remember the opening scene is the kind of like Madison Avenue all white boardroom mm. of the advertising agency, and uh, the chairman of the board has a cardiac arrest and dies like on the table. Yeah, And so they have to go around with the body on the table. They go around and do a vote for who's going to be the next chair. There's one black guy. It's the late 60s. And they all do anonymous vote. And when it comes time to read the votes, he wins unanimously to be the next chair. And all the white dudes are enraged. Like, how did he do it? First of all, each white dude voted for him because none of them wanted another white dude uh -huh. to become the chair. And then he voted him for himself. <laughs> so not only are they mad that they uh -huh. all like hoodwinked each other, uh -huh. then they say like, you voted for yourself. And he's like, of course, I was the best man for the job. Mm. He gets up, he says a speech and he's like, I just want to let you know, there's just going to be a few small changes. And then the next scene is the boardroom. It's all brothers in afros. <laughs> yeah. You know, people are doing hair, braiding uh -huh. hair at the, at the table. And, uh, you know, watch the film and, and, and just because you swap out the boardroom and put all black people and doesn't make it great, they still, you know, do shitty marketing campaigns for black people. It's just black people doing uh -huh. the marketing. So there's a good, a good lesson there. But I was going to say, really, in the spirit of this moment, another model is turning over your podcast to me. Yeah. And I take it over. So what is Knox Robinson's podcast that Rich Roll look like. So right. then I started kind of like thinking about what that was going to be. I was like, I would have to have a DJ, you uh -huh. know, kind of playing. It would have like music break. And right. I was like, how would I, what would Knox Robinson do in the spirit of the revolution? Like, what would I do to totally flip your podcast? Uh -huh. So that's the other. I like that. That's man. the other proposition. I would let you do that. It, yeah. You have seen people do that with Instagram. They're turning their Instagram accounts yeah. over to a diversity of voices. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. So, yeah. you know. There'd be the Anytime DJ. you want to come and do that, man. <laughs> you might have to move out of Mexico City at some point. How long are you going to be there, you think? I'm working on something special. I mean, yeah, I'm working on something special. I'm bringing together, um, you know, I'm, I'm building a training camp with Herman Silva, the oh, two-time wow, cool. New York City Marathon uh -huh. winner. And I'm um, working with one of the greatest architects, Michelle Rochkind, who you know, uh, wow. also in Mexico City. And so Michelle's gonna kind of create this amazing brutal architecture structure next to Herman Silva's training camp. And so we're working on that like right now. Like a now. permanent home as yeah. a retreat center. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. So that should be, you know, ready, you know, 
at the end of this year. Wow. So I'm really excited to to share that. Obviously, like so this one, is going to be like a second home for you. A second home, but I want it to be like a second home for like a lot of people because uh-huh. I was thinking about, you know, as we were heading up to the Tokyo Olympics and and how some of our American elites, you know, I, I'm thinking about it when I was a kid looking up at elites, you know, Steve Holman and, and Bob Kennedy, and they're like titans to me. Now I'm older and I'm a dad and I'm thinking how these kids are living. And I was like, oh, these kids are starving. Like these kids are like the best runners in America mm-hmm. and they're broke. <laughs> right. Now we deal with brands so we know how bad these deals are. You know, they're, <laughs> they're making like crazy little money. And so I was like, oh, I kind of want to have a training center where I can just like throw the keys to some of these great training groups that are out there. You know, you see them on Instagram and they're doing amazing workouts on uh-huh. a dirt road in Boulder, but you're like, are these guys living like eight in a condo in Boulder? Yeah. Like, can I? Yeah. Or just, Flagstaff. Yeah. Flagstaff. Like you want to glamorize it when we're stuck in our worlds, you know, in our, in our things, but I just want to throw the keys to like some folks and just have people come out and train for like six weeks and like, you know, see oh, what cool. see what it's like. That's so yeah, cool. I just want it to be like a, a resource for 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 people kind of getting after their goals in that kind nice. of way. Yeah, I met Silva when I did that event in Mexico City. He's such oh, okay. A beautiful, humble yeah. guy. Really, an incredible yeah. person. Um, and it's an, he's so still so engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's funny to have kind of like ended up in this bizarre friendship with him over the past like eight right. or so years. So right. to kind of build this project with him along with Michelle is really kind of coming together of, of serendipitous energy. Yeah. Um, have you seen uh, this, uh, have you seen Emmanuel Acho's Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man? No, what's his, that? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> this is like blowing up the internet. Yeah. So he he played football at University of Texas and was in the NFL. Um, and now he's doing this series, like Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. And he did his first one with Matthew McConaughey. Oh, okay. And just like exploded the internet. And yeah. it's, it's cool because- you know, Matthew is the foil to him. And yeah. it's like, is it, should I say black or African-American? Like it's very, it's very basic. And yeah. he is so eloquent in like walking people through, like, let's just, you know, get a few things straight here. You know what I mean? You should <laughs> I need that. No, because a couple people, <laughs> a couple of listeners I know or viewers who are seeing this are gonna, he's talking about me, but yeah, folks have asked, uh-huh. been asking me like capital B or lowercase B, so. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, it's you know, I was writing a blog post the other day, and it's like, and I thought about that. I was like, is it black or is it African American? Like, which one is it? You know, there's like a lot of stuff that, like, you know, the the learning curve is high I for guess everybody because that you know? in and of itself is is a great Google search, right? Because it's like which newspapers and which media organizations in the 20th century decided to say, well, colored Negro, but then black capital B. What does capital B indicate versus lowercase? So it's a question of syntax and grammar that that editors can weigh in on, but it's also a question of identity um, for a lot of folks too. So, you know, um, (laughs) yeah, language politics as much as personal politics. Back on this thing about allyship, yeah. I'm not sure we ever got to the, the uh, answer yeah, on that, but I, I'm interested. More, you know, I want to explore that a little bit more, and also kind of what the what the blind spots are that you're seeing out there. Yeah, because um, I'm thinking about it a lot, and like again, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to like do white people's work and like think about uh-huh. what a white ally should be. I mean, respect to other brothers and sisters who are like ally coaches right now. That that's valid. You know, it's just not not my thing, but. 
having had incredible relationships with 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 white folks, you know, for the course of my life, I keep thinking about um, I keep thinking about this guy that I trained with when I left New York City and I moved up to the woods on the banks of the Hudson River. Mm. His name's Mike Slinsky. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit last time. Yeah. Um, He's never going to see this, so I can speak freely. <laughs> Before he was on Instagram, uh, I would write about him all the time. I called him the bus driver. Um, he was driving a bus for, for the local school district, and um, I was just telling him all, like, writing about his incredible wildlife and his stories and his insight. I mean, this guy, like, changed my life. But um, he was on Instagram, so it was like a gift for a writer. I could just mm-hmm. be writing about this dude, and he would never know. <laughs> and right. I mean, now he's on Instagram, and I'm like, What's up, man? <laughs> so now he's on Strava. No, it's uh, bad. Now he's on Strava. Uh, can't get away. It's bad. I was like, and I'll travel. You know, when Strava gives you the alerts when um, that your course little segment is, you know, you lost the course record or something. I don't know like what that. that's like because well, I know I haven't held, held any of those. You got to run some obscure course. <laughs> yeah. I told you I was living in the Hudson no, I Valley. Do not, I, that's that's part of the uh, the the uh, athletic experience that I'm not familiar yeah, with. Yeah. Well. Oh yeah. You're because <laughs> you're like in no. direct hits of that. No, no, I was living in the Hudson Valley. They, they barely get an internet. So, um, yeah, I'll be traveling somewhere. And I woke up and I was like, I just lost a course record to mm. this dude. And I was like, you don't know that. He's like, why? What's that? I was like, well, you get an email notification. He's like, what? I was like, yeah, you just, never mind. <laughs> so, right. But this guy, over the course of the time that I was living in this tiny town on the banks of the Hudson, was incredible. He was just the best training partner, consistent, focused. And you would really have to work hard. I mean, if I've known this dude almost 10 years, the number of times we've kind of like veered out of like non-training talk um, have been few, Mm. you know. And I'm talking about like when we're running, sometimes we're running through these towns in upstate New York and uh, we run through this town next to ours, Wappinger Falls. And I was like, Wappinger Falls isn't where this was the whole Tawani Brawley incident, Tawana Brawley incident. Um, Al Sharpton was up here and there was like protests and stuff. He's like, yeah, bad times Mm. in town. And so um, you couldn't really pull this guy into kind of any identity politics conversations, but he would come around and run. He's always going to be there with the workout. He's always ready for that, that Sunday long run. This guy would get up before our long run and he would go and like put water out on the course. Yeah over a 20 mile run and then come back and then meet us and then run for like three people. You know, that that's kind of like my understanding of like serving others and, and serving a friend and being an ally. So even in running, you know, you're uh, an ally in running doesn't necessarily have to like be up on the New York Times bestseller list, but a person who's respecting you as an athlete and respecting you as another person and mm-hmm. definitely making sure that you're afforded safe passage if you're like moving, moving through, through space, but, um, someone who has your back in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think on like a social level, the other thing that I can't get over is like, as white folks are trying to tell each other what an ally looks like. And as like, you know, you're trying to out ally, yeah, each other ally each other. And then like, it's super <laughs> binary black and white. Uh-huh. And so like, you know, Asians are trying to figure out how they participate in it and they're trying to like settle scores with white people and they haven't necessarily been historically the best allies with black people. So the whole thing is fraught. And I just think that like, 
ah, this isn't a, a, an idea that's been vetted by the experts, but I think white allies got to look at, or like aspirational allies just got to take a seat and like look at how black people interact with each other. The mutuality, the exchange, the information exchange, the love exchange that occurs. Black people are hard on each other, you know, for sure. But the bedrock of love and respect that has been key to the survival and the perseverance, but also like the flourishment of our culture mm. is is key. So, you know, no book is is really going to tell you how to do that. It's going to provide some insight. But one thing I don't understand about these lists is like there's very little fiction, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, a white ally has read Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon. You know, like if, if, if black culture is part of the of our American culture and Toni Morrison won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1993, like everybody here on Instagram talking about allyship and all that, if you don't have Toni Morrison on your bookshelf, if you're just not reading our Nobel laureate fiction, then like what are you doing with mm-hmm. like all these self-help books on the shelf? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So I really think, you know, yeah, I was like, I need a short answer for what a white ally looks like. And it, like, no, I like that. I yeah, mean, it's just like Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon on your bookshelf. Cool. That's like an early, early step, you know? Yeah. It is interesting that that may be a blind spot and yet black culture predominates pop culture, you know, from music to film, right? Like yeah. it's, I mean, well, hip, if black hip-hop, body, yeah. hip, I mean, hip hop is so dominant, sure. you know, in terms of its cultural influence right now. Sure. Um, and yet that doesn't necessarily track to its antecedents. Well, no, it does, sadly, right? Because I mean, the, the art form does, lar- but the, po- the popular interest doesn't. Oh, the I'm popular saying. interest. Yeah. I was thinking in like a more macabre sense of the entire wealth of, you know, the Americas was predicated on black bodies. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, <laughs> so, that, yeah, yeah, that for so sure. So for us, right. like seeing hip hop, and 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 the legacy of like blacks in America in the Americas is an essential link. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, for real. You, by the time it becomes pop popular, um, you sort of lose that original essence, right? Or or you think you do right by the more bricolage yeah. you put on top of 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 a foment. Yeah. So your son's in New York, right? Yeah. What are the conversations that you're having with him right now about what's going on? Yeah, he's tough. He's 16. He's 16. He's 16. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh, it's got to be terrible for him. But I can't understand. I, I, I don't know if it's like really hard to be 16 in a quarantine lockdown. <sighs> I or, got a 16-year-old daughter. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's either bad, but it's like it's rough being 16 no matter what, mm-hmm. you know? So like if you're Baron Trump, it's rough being Baron Trump. No matter who your parents are, you know what I mean. If the, if that's his parents, uh-huh. you know what I mean. So, um, so I can't tell. I, I can't tell mm. if my son how hard it is. You can't. You can't. You can't separate the angst of sixteen with the experience of a young black man growing up around a lot of chaos. Yeah, that's yeah. Right and also now. with me as his dad, um, he's definitely more even tempered than I am too. So he's he's telling me to chill. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. So. He is on the precipice of like a huge time in his life thinking about college, but then what is that even going to look like? So I'm yeah. just kind of like, 
it's it's weird all the way around. Yeah. Um, he lives in Fort Greene, and to think that folks were burning a New York City police department police cruiser like a couple blocks from his house, like that was that block. I, I lived on that block when he was born. I mean, the day I got home from the hospital, where that police van is, I walked to right on that block with my son in my arms, yeah, and like watched the sunrise, had coffee, and like told him and, you know, my ancestors that I was going to be a better man than I had been to that point. We'll see what how that turns out. But And then I started running the next day. Mm-hmm. So to see that police van charred, you know, is uh, is actually like a weird kind of like touchstone. And you know, the, my son still lives in the neighborhood with his mom. So they, she's been holding it down. And yeah, it's, it's interesting to see mm-hmm. what, what he's going to do with it. What do you, like, what do you want him to take away? Like, how does that from your perspective, inform, you know, how he matures into a man? Like, what do you want him to take away from this experience as a young black man growing up in America and in New York? Yeah, but I I haven't really updated it since I thought about what I wanted for him as he was coming into this world. And I wanted, I, I expect, I demand that he be a good citizen. I mean, all these kind of like, corny things that we came up with about like helping the elderly cross the street, um, whether you believe in voting or not, but like civics, you know, I think that the best examples of, of our culture, no matter what your background is, I think that that's what I hope my son and my daughter embody. You know, Mm -hmm. I think I expect and demand that he's, um, has an engagement in the whole world and thinking about our global community. I, I, I expect and demand that he, you know, cares about others and is compassionate and conscientious. But at the same time, as a young man, he's got to make his own way. And so if I've sort of obfuscated or, or, or made fraught my meandering progression, that in a way is, is, you know, kind of implying to him that it's a, it's a com- incumbent on him as, as a young man to find his mm-hmm. own way, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it, it's interesting to kind of think of how you raise your kids, you know. Um, when we were living in Brooklyn, you know, taking him home from school one time, he's four or five, and uh, somebody comes around the corner and like wanted to sell like a PlayStation under his jacket, like, yo, ah. and I was like, Ah, and in that moment, like, how do you explain that to your kid? Because my son's like, oh, my God, yo, we could have had a PlayStation dad. And I was like, well, do you explain, do you assume that it was stolen? Do you explain, you know, what what do you do? And then at that moment, he's four. And I was like, am I going to be the kind of person who tells their four-year-old that there's good people in the world and bad people in the world and that bad people steal and good people don't? And just in that moment, I was just like, ah, I got to like be, <laughs> I got to be truthful, you know, yeah. and, and kind of talk about how complicated it is to, to live in Brooklyn, you know, mm-hmm. where, you know, whatever you're doing to make a living is on a spectrum of, of, uh, of morality in a way. And certainly, for instance, someone selling weed 
in Brooklyn 15 years ago in California in 2020 could be, you know, living an in entrepreneur's crib. Yeah, yeah, an entrepreneur, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, even our morality spectrum is so ill-informed by sort of arbitrary or self-advantageous or convenient Well, the factors, morality spectrum know? has to be contextualized by the social, you know, forces that compel a restriction of opportunity. Yeah, so we have to change those social forces, right? right? Like we can't affect the spectrum. You can't can't even participate in the spectrum if the sources are suspect, right? We got to really dismantle those forces that you're describing and that's the work we're doing when we're talking about, you know, dismantling white supremacy. I mean, white supremacy is such a wild idea. It's such a wild phrase and I keep referring back to this uh police van that was you know, torched mm -hmm. in, in Brooklyn. And I saw the photo, I'm in Mexico city, thousands of miles away. And I see these young, two young black women, fresh clothes style, and they're posing in front of the police van. And one of the sisters is holding up a sign that says, fuck white supremacy. And I swear it was like one of the most inspiring images I've ever seen in my life. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I had a couple friends, black friends, who were like, ah, that's chasing clout. Oh, kids these days, they'll say anything. And I was like, no, it's crazy that these girls, these young women could have done anything. They could have like done any pose. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sisters got poses for days. And when it came time for them to like take a photo in front of this burning police car, they held up a sign that said, "White, fuck white supremacy. That's crazy. Like you couldn't say fuck white supremacy six months ago. People don't even know what that means. Like white supremacy wasn't even like a discussed concept. Mm -hmm. And so if, if understanding white supremacy as a concept is, has entered our national dialogue and we're able to work on that, that, that just wasn't even happening just a short time ago. I mean, the fact that Miriam, you know, Webster changed the definition of racism this week. Oh, they did. I don't even know that. That's ah, crazy. How did it change? I, it, the art, it's too crazy. It was like a sister just woke up one day. Oh, I guess she had been emailing them, you uh -huh. know. And I think the definition that they had was the belief, racism is the belief that characteristics and all this kind of stuff determine who you are as a people, race or these concepts. And she's like, this definition is off, you know. Um and she kept emailing them and emailing them. And then after all the events that we've seen around the world recently, they emailed her back and they're like, you know, we took a second look at this definition. And, you know, it's not just this errant belief in like race-based characteristics. Like even the, the situating of that definition is problematic. <laughs> you got to think about what the sister was doing because she must have just been sitting around with white coworkers like it's happening in every coffee break room around the country where white people are like, right, they're in I'm an not racist. And then I, yeah, let me pull up the definition and read it to you. Remember that? Right? Remember yeah. when people used to, well, look it up in the dictionary. The belief that, you know, that right. that's not me. So, so they changed it to, to, to how did they, what was the change? The change is like, it's, it's more complex. Like it's uh -huh. like brings in, again, sort of what we were just talking about in terms of like the nuanced, um, the nuanced forces that affect 
a person's view of, of seeing race in that way rather than just like some erroneous view that if it didn't apply to you, you know, it's almost like, um, it's almost like Buddhism, right? Like Buddhism doesn't care if you believe in it or not. It's uh -huh. just the way the world is put together, you know, uh, four noble truths and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think updating the definition of racism and taking it away from this idea that like, it's an idea that exists out there that a person can subscribe to or not. And if it doesn't, if they think it doesn't apply to them, then they're absolved of being a racist. It's like recognizing that racism is a social force that is affecting people rather uh -huh. than a belief that you're respective of your individual perspective right. on it. Yeah. I just couldn't think about like the practicalities of how this That's woman. That's huge. Yeah. And it was just this one sister who just was like, to whom so I make concern. Not taking the, this yeah, anymore. Info at yeah, Merriam yeah. Webster, like, uh -huh. and yeah, it was crazy. So that's wild. Like, yeah, we'll yeah. look it up in the dictionary, yeah. you know, like for every. <laughs> Oh no, then God. I was realized, I was like, oh, that's what was going on. She uh -huh. was like sick of like working at Radio Shack, not Radio Shack, but like sick of probably working on these dudes who was just like, I'm not racist, look it up. Wow. The uh, the imagery and the filmmaking that's going on right now is is so extraordinary, yeah. you know, and it's almost like a day doesn't go by where there's a new clip of this person doing that, behave, whether it's behaving badly or behaving courageously. And, you know, it's so... It's so impactful and powerful and indelible, the power of, of um, you know, these phones that we have in our pocket to chronicle this moment so comprehensively and the impact of that on our kind of national and individual psyche. Um, and I'm interested in, I, I think I already know the answer to this, but, you know, how that leaves you. Like on some level, this is, this is not new, like this has been going on for a long time, but for whatever reason, it's entered our consciousness because of the rapid fire nature of these recent, you know, tragic events that were were depicted in a way that made them, you know, irrefutable. Like mm. we just, they demanded that we pay attention to what's happening. Um, and when you hear about, you know, the de whether it's the definition of racism in the dictionary getting changed or people taking to the streets, like change is happening and there is this sense that um, we are living in a very historic moment of promise and opportunity. And personally, that gives me hope. And I know there's people out there like Ta-Nehisi Coates who are expressing hopefulness around this. I listened to a podcast with him recently with Ezra Klein in which he expressed that. I mean, do you share that or how do you kind of project into the near and far future about how this is gonna unfold? Well, Coates is an interesting example because he actually sees his own work as a pivot from the Obama era optimism, where Obama says the Obama said that the the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? The moral I think the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice, yeah, right? Or eventually or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Coates is like it bends towards confusion, you know mm. what I mean? And and that's that's a scary concept, but I think that what we see in his work and what I think we see in this moment now is um, a falling of the scales from our eyes. And I think that this is an opportunity for us to really see things as they are, you know, and really grasp hold of that. And not what, you know, mainstream media is telling us by the time it gets it, but what we're actually like, what we know to be true. And that's, that's, that is a leap of faith, 
right? You know, but I think that this is our chance to see beyond the speeches that politicians are making. This is our chance to, to, to think a little bit beyond what our mainstream media is telling us. And what does it mean for us? And strangely, um, this opportunity has been a reset on so many levels, but it's been a reset on like my mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. And going back to the beginnings of that and then just thinking about the ways in which a mindfulness practice helps us just think of things more clearly, you know? Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, you, you kind of think that meditation is like about, Hey, come a guru on a mountaintop or something like that. But I've been reading and hearing some things lately that it's like, it's not even about this nirvana state of an empty mind. It's actually about, um, more practical than that in some ways. And it's about like being able to navigate thoughts mm. and like, see things clearly. And I think that that's a tremendous gift that that is at our disposal right now to, to, to work through. And I think that kind of work on a personal level is what's going to equip all of us to, to kind of work our way through. And, and that's what we're seeing in the comment section, right? To take it from like a, a spiritual idea down to like a super, you know, absurd example. But before you might see all comments sort of unified. But now if you're seeing all these kind of disparate voices, you're seeing like the fragmentation of people thinking their way through it in the mm -hmm. past few weeks, you know, in 1992, rioting was bad. Or why would these people burn their own neighborhood? Well, in Los Angeles, it was an update of 92. They weren't burning their yeah. own neighborhood, right? It was like a strategic move to burn um, non-black neighborhoods. It, 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 it the conversation that's happening with white people about like the difference between protesting, peaceful protesting, looting and rioting. That's an interesting conversation to have instead of just kind of like watching your TV screen glow yeah. in the night and like kind of like making assumptions right. on what you think it is. Right. That happened Without understanding that, that choices are being made about which images you're being presented and, yeah. and they're being contextualized in a certain way. And that, I, that happened to me though, you know, like the day, uh, the day after um, Minneapolis first started to burn, I got on Instagram and I saw this really wild footage of someone just driving down the road, holding their phone out. And it was just like block after block of devastation. Mm. Like on a cultural level, a pop cultural level, I, I couldn't, couldn't, I couldn't, it was just like blocks and blocks. And then it was posted with like no commentary, but it was posted by uh, this amazing shop called Repair Lair. Uh, I, I followed him on Instagram because I think I must have read an article about him in Outside Magazine. And it was this cool, I think a cool young couple, cool young people who are, have a, a business that repairs outdoors gear. You know what I mean? So there's uh -huh. a sustainability mission. There's an access mission and all that kind of stuff. At the time, I wasn't really thinking about the provenance and the handle. So I was just like, hey, I'm a follow fan of this account. I think it's problematic that you're posting this, you know, or I'm disappointed that you would post it without any context, you know, because uh -huh. uh, their followers were outdoor supporters. And so there was so much condemnation of why would these people burn their own stores and are you safe? And I was like, oh man, you're on the wrong side of history with this little judgmental on my part, but reacting in the moment. And um, 
man, the owner really like got at me in the comments, you know, like it was really antagonistic and some of the other people and I don't engage in social media in terms of like going back and forth with people. Mm -hmm. I just one cup of coffee, you know, and, and kind of reacted. And so since then I've like opened up a dialogue with the owner, with this woman and, and, and just try to like figure that out. And, you know, um, thinking about how I could connect or we could connect and the outdoors world could connect with the rebuilding of urban devastation in Minneapolis, you know, like where the destruction of her shop is, is just a few blocks from where Brogan Graham lives, you know? And so how can we kind of think about supporting small businesses as we build back our cities um, and still continue our, our mission of like sustainability and Mm -hmm. access to the outdoors and all that kind of stuff. So I really think that, you know, important conversations bridging that gap and, and, and and reaching across that impasse, you know, um, not only me acknowledging that maybe I was kind of like applying too much heavy pressure to someone who was like fearful of losing their business, but also being able to double back outside the chatter and make a connection. And then I'm just kind of like, among a lot of other things I'm thinking about is how I can connect with this woman and her business that like has a, has a great mission, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's that second piece, I think that's impactful that ties into the mindfulness. So you you saw this, you got activated and despite your <laughs> mindfulness practice, you found yourself reactive, yeah. but at least you were able to uh, understand that you were being reactive and realize that there was actually an opportunity here and to reach across and and to try to, you know, develop a little bit of brotherhood or unity. You yeah. know, where can we see eye to eye here, even though we may may be perceiving this situation completely differently? Sure. Yeah, I mean, because like you gotta dance with a girl that brung you, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I was thinking, how did I even get up there in the uh-huh. in the first place? How was I following? I ended up on following. I was like, I'm not even here for yeah. this convo. Like, and I only got pulled back in when she kind of kept talking at me and, and I had to had to come back and be like, Are you still talking? Uh-huh. Thought about it again empathetically, and then I was just calling Brogan. I was like, yo, this business is right around the corner from you. You're the founder of November Project. Like, let's has he has he? Uh, that's cool. I've been yeah. I've been I've been talking to him a little bit too. Yeah, um, you know, just getting his boots on the ground perspective on what's happening. It's amazing because, um, yeah. <laughs> Again, I'm not doing any any white dudes work for him. <laughs> Black ally, all, all allies aren't created like all allies are equal, but yeah. some are more equal than others. I am not here. I, I'm I mean, not. This is the, be the title of this podcast. Is going to be I am not here to be your. <laughs> White knight, say, savior. Like a, a black, yeah, a black like, ally for a white guy is different from how a white guy got to be an ally to a black dude. So uh-huh. from Brogan, it's been a little light. I've been just kind of like, hey, um, he sent you those videos. Yeah, that's how he communicates. Yeah, it's right, absurd. Uh, yeah. So you see one pop up, and you're like, gotta like, <laughs> you're like, now I gotta yourself. make a video back. Yeah, you can't be around your lady. Like, no. it's a weird love affair with this guy who's like wearing <laughs> some wild clothes. Uh huh. Um, but yeah, he was getting a little pressure. There was like a, a, a real strong brother, a real strong voice in New Orleans who was just like going ham on November Project for co-opting an Ahmad Arbery run. Yeah, and like, I know they found their, themselves in a little bit of a crosshairs with that. Yeah, and I was like, hey, Brogan, like I didn't even wade in over there. I didn't just kind of like, yeah, light him up, brother. Like, cool. Double back to Brogan, like, hey, you good on it? That's kind let of me, intense. Let me help you and he's like yeah. kind of... 
gradually there, or like, even if I'm not helping him, I'm like listening or even just tapping him on the shoulder that like, Hey, you're the founder, you've moved on in your life and you're raising the kid. I'm raising a kid, but like, this is like, just dig on this conversation. He's like, yeah, cool. And then three weeks later, his entire neighborhood is burning. Mm -hmm. Like that was a wild kind of thing. I was like, Hey, let's catch up sometime and like talk about represent black representation in November project. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then like three weeks later, he's like, we should have had that yeah, we, call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Better Shout late, out to better everyone. Better late than like, never. Yeah. You know, waiting. And, and nothing combo. but love for Brogan. Yeah. He just incredible. sent me a t-shirt uh, that he made. Um, well, I, I, I cajoled him into sending, making me one and sending it to me because he was doing it on Instagram. But it says, it's those hand spray painted t-shirts that he makes, yeah. you know, but it says Zoom call summer camp. Yes, yes. I was like, I Just as painful that. as the November project yeah. session, I'm sure. That's yeah. that's crazy. I don't understand why people want to be in November project anyway. Like black people complain and I was like, it, your arms are sore. Like why, if it's not representative, like that's cool. Like just, it's a, that's fine. November project is hard. It is hard. <laughs> it's like I've only done one. Not every even, right. <laughs> same. That's what I'm saying. I was like, yeah. Brogan, let's just be mm -hmm. friends because I ain't never coming to your thing. So <laughs> yeah. when black people are mad about it, I want to pull them to the side. Like, let it. You, don't, you don't want to do that anyway. Fine. Right. Yeah. We got bigger fish to fry. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, man. Well, let's uh, let's land this plane. Um, how do we end this? I mean, you, you know, I think it would be good to just. Recap, maybe just share, you know, some final parting thoughts about, um, you know, how we move forward in the best way, and you know, not not to harp on this allyship thing, but I, I really do want to, you know, use this platform, you know, for good and 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 to you know be part of the solution to this problem, and I just I want to explore every possible way that I can do that, um, and having you here to speak to that has been super helpful to me, so thank you for that, and you know, maybe just share a couple quick quick thoughts to round it out. Yeah. I mean, I, I know I'm wildly discursive all over the place, but I, I just, I keep, I keep coming back to this idea of love. So I know that's super obvious and basic and people have talked about it from time, but um, Ahmaud Arbery's best friend say that it was weird. Every time he would like leave from hanging out, he would say like, I love you, man. And he wouldn't leave until they said it. And these mm -hmm. are like young brothers sitting around in rural Georgia at the car wash leaving work, you know? And like, that's like a really insane and rigorous practice to do. So when I called up all these uh, brothers and told them I loved them, it was like rigorous from my end. It was, it was tough, you know, um, to reach out. And man, for all the mistakes that I've made and that I'm going to continue to make as soon as I walk out this door, I just want to keep thinking about love. And, and I, and I, and I wish that I would hope that this would be a moment for people to reset and reflect on what that is, you know, and for all the little microaggressions that we engage in or all the times that we, take around chit chat and anytime we just, you know, serve as a detractor to someone else for no reason, all these things are adding up to this 
giant feeling of of psychic pain that you can just feel, whether you're feeling it in America's cities or you're feeling it in Ahmaud Arbery's killers. Like how abject were these guys that they went into like seek and destroy mode? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's not too early to kind of think about the spiritual poverty, the imaginative poverty that racists feel. You know what I mean? So if if we can kind of at least consider what an ethic of love looks and feels like, if we can just kind of like reset and refer back to those basic civics that maybe we thought we were going to pursue as we got older, that's really what I'm thinking about. And, I, and I'm thinking about that, honestly, in like a really um, – corny kind of social media way. Like it's okay to be like a white ally with, you know, 1,047 followers and like here's the list and you're like banging on at white people. But if then you're like going and getting in the DMs and like detracting from someone else, Mm -hmm. if you're the purveyor of suspicion or innuendo or, you know, kind of things like – you got to think if our own white supremacy is uninvestigated until very recently, and that's black people. Like black people have a social sickness that we've inherited from 400 years of experience in this country. So everybody is is on the docket right now to investigate our own internalized white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Every time you dragging somebody and everyone, you're engaged in a little bit of chit chat. Every time you're sort of kind of like – appropriating. And every time you're doing all the little things, you know, it's not just racist jokes that you're kind of telling, you know, they're in the break room. It's like all the little small things that are up for investigation. Like the world doesn't become any less boring because you're not like the funny person telling racist jokes Mm -hmm. and your world doesn't become any less interesting when you kind of like fall back from engaging in gossip and innuendo, you know? So I just think that for me, that's what I've been trying to consider. Um, And that's individual work. You're not going to get a pat on the back for that. If you you stop that, no one's going to know. You know what I mean? Like if you stop being a racist, the only people who are going to know are your racist friends. So I'm sorry to tell all the allies, the aspirational allies out there, it ain't no medals. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? It ain't no podium kind of thing. You see, uh-huh. even the white dude was on there with the podium and with John Carlos and he just yeah. they didn't even give him a glove. Whatever. He's like, yeah. it's two gloves, bro. You, <laughs> you, you don't have any more gloves. You know what I mean? Everything you know, it's funny thing about white people. Every time you post a photo of John Carlos or and Tommy Smith, there's always a white guy from New Zealand who got a chump in him like, yeah. unless we forget. Yeah. <laughs> like <I know>. so. <laughs> um so yeah, I guess I, I, <laughs> I guess I just want to kind of think about that with like a namaste type of vibe of, of things, you know. Mm. Well, that's beautiful. Speaking man. of appropriation, yeah. Like, shout out to <laughs> yeah. the brothers How and dare sisters. You? <laughs> All those Hindus out there, yeah. Very upset with Anatomy. you, me. right? Um, I love you, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, I appreciate your openness and honesty and vulnerability today. It, it, it meant a lot to me that you came all the way out here to share with me. So I appreciate you, and uh, 
I look forward to spending more time with you, man. Hopefully, I've got to get out and get some running well, done yo. too. So, right. thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity, just to kind of like share in that that energy. Yeah, know? it was good, man. Yeah, it was good. You feel all right? Yeah, I feel excellent. Good. Yeah. Um, if people are digging on Knox, easiest, best way to find them at First Run on Instagram. Is yes. that where you want to direct people? Yeah, Anything for else sure. going on you want to let people know about? No, man. It's just uh, big things are kind of coming up as you know, kind of. Uh, Building this place in Mexico, yeah, keep and, me and on kind of moving to some some new projects to to share with folks to kind of participate in these ideas that we've shared too. So I've definitely been using this time to kind of go back to my own drawing board. So I'm really looking forward to things from here on out to to share. Yeah, cool, man. Thank you. All right, thank you. Peace, plants. Namaste. Yeah. Batman is a gem. I love Knox. Probably one of the coolest people I know, hands down. Be sure to hit him up on Instagram. You can find him at First Run. Please check out the show notes for copious resources on all matters discussed today. And if you would like to support our work, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. If you'd like to support our work here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. It's also very helpful when you share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. And you can support us on Patreon at richworld.com forward slash donate. I appreciate my team who works very hard every week to put on the show. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis for videoing today's show. Jessica Morana for graphics. Georgia Whaley for copywriting. Allie Rogers for portraits. DK for advertiser relationships and theme music by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Hari Mathis. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here in a couple days with another, what's next? Oh, I think we're gonna do an AMA, Ask Me Anything. I'm back with Adam midweek this week, continuing in the series that we started uh, just like two weeks ago, I think. I'm excited about that. So until then, be well, peace. Peace.